Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Uh, this week is going to be a best of Power Hour for a couple of reasons. One is I'm recording at least one new Power Hour in the next week. It's with the climate economist Richard Toll. We had an interesting exchange on Twitter uh, where he was critical of something that I said about energy prices. And uh, we disagreed, but he happily agreed to come on the podcast to discuss it and also some of his other views. He's a very interesting guy, very you know, prominent climate economist who challenges a lot of academic catastrophism. So while I disagree with him on a lot of things, I think he's an interesting guy and his viewpoint is definitely worth hearing. So excited about that. Also trying to get uh, one of my favorite figures in African energy to come talk about the Paris Climate Accords, and hopefully me even talking about it here, uh, pressures him to come on, uh, rather not just the Paris Climate Accords, but rather the continuation of that, which is the upcoming what's called uh, COP26 in Glasgow, which starts at the very beginning of November. So uh, got a bunch of other things planned, so that's part of why I'm not having a new episode. But the other reason is because I was thinking about it and there was an episode early this year that I think was prophetic. And I think it's really worth rehearing in the context of what's happened. And this is my interview with the energy economist, Michael Lynch. Now, for those of you who are familiar with this program throughout its history, Mike first came on the show, it was either the second or third episode. And he made a prediction about oil prices that back then seemed impossible because oil prices were around $100 at the time. And he said, no, like it's going to be you know, $30, $50, $70 in that kind of range. And that just seemed like, no, of course, oil prices are going to go up back then. But he was right about that. And he's, he's generally more right than anyone I know in this field. And yet uh, lots of people who make totally wrong predictions are, are uh, they're much more prominent then Mike is not that he's not well respected, but people like Amory Lovins, uh, lots of different catastrophists, they just are totally wrong all the time. And there's no price to pay. And in particular, there are a lot of people wrong early this year saying, well, post pandemic, oil is just going to stay low. Of course, it had declined during the pandemic lockdown, it's going to stay low, it's going to decline, we're at peak oil demand. And now that that has not happened at all, and the world is experiencing big shortages of fossil fuels for reasons I'll be discussing and debating with, uh, I'll be discussing and debating those issues uh, with Richard Toll next week. Um, and I think it's really clear that these people who predicted peak oil demand were just wrong. And I think it's really valuable to listen to that interview and discussion with Mike to see what his reasoning was, as well as what my reasoning was at the time, because I think we were very much vindicated. And while the People who made the wrong predictions haven't done much soul searching or any, as far as I can tell. I think it's it's useful to see, okay, who was actually right and what reasons did they give and what kind of methodology did they use? So you could call that self-aggrandizing, but I think I'll just call it uh, educational. And had I made those wrong predictions, I promise you I would have been very concerned about it and discussed it uh, publicly. All right. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Before uh, we go into it. I'll, I'll say something about this at the end as well, but I just want to announce, because I haven't mentioned it on Power Hour yet, because I don't think it existed last Power Hour, uh, that I have a new uh, newsletter under Substack, which is the popular new newsletter, and it's it's free. It's the Energy Talking Points newsletter. And I think this is going to take Energy Talking Points to the next level, because it's going to give you the latest talking points in a very current fashion. I think we've published about eight of them so far, they're pretty short, so you can read through them in a few minutes and really get uh, to the bottom of issues or get on top of issues, depending on how, at least, be, let's just say, get on top of issues 
And then you, it's at least the beginning of getting to the bottom of them in part because there are a lot of references in these. So check that out. It's at alexepstein.substack.com. And please share this with others. This is a free resource. We're really at a crucial point in energy history. We've got this horrific reconciliation bill being promoted in the US. We've got this horrific climate conference internationally. We've got this energy crisis that's really showcasing the failures of green energy. This is the time for everyone to be armed. And so this resource is, you know, it's free and I can distribute, there's no limit on how many I can send out because Substack has unlimited distribution. So please make use of it. Also, I just announced in my other, my regular, more personal newsletter that um, to incentivize people to share it, if you can get 10 people to subscribe, you can get, I'll give you a, a free one-year paid subscription to Substack. So basically, uh, most of the writing in Energy Talking Points is totally free. But if you pay, you get access to certain things like discussion forums that others don't get access to. You get the ability to comment. I will probably be offering uh, full transcripts, really good transcripts of Power Hour in the future, but that doesn't exist, exist, exist yet. But if you do want that uh, a subscription and you want to get it free, I would prefer that you found me 10 new subscribers versus paying for it. Because for me, Substack is not, uh, I'm not planning on it being like a money generating thing. I have other ways of making money. I want it to be, I want 100,000 people plus on this. And I'm totally happy if none of them are paying. So if you do, if you can get 10 people to subscribe, you'll get a free year paid subscription. If you can get 100 people to subscribe, I will give you a personalized signed copy of Fossil Future, which now has a cover, which I'll show very soon. It, I think it's a really cool cover. I spent a lot of time going back and forth with the designer to make it as good as I wanted. So uh, also I think the book is good. So uh, free, uh, you'll get a personalized signed copy of that. And if somebody can find a thousand subscribers, then I will give a virtual uh, speech and Q&A to whatever organization you want. So. Hopefully that's incentive. As for how to verify that, if you can get people to agree and you can show that they've agreed, you can just send me a spreadsheet with the names and I can put them in. Uh, otherwise, you'll have to find some clever way of just directing them to alexepstein.substack.com and validating that you directed at least, that at least approximately that many people uh, signed up. It's not going to be totally scientific maybe, but... Uh, I just want the basic incentive. So again, this is a, I think a hugely valuable resource for everyone. And I just want to, um, I just want to encourage uh, ever. I want to incentivize everyone to spread it as much as possible, as quickly as possible. All right. Well, now that I went into all of that, I was, I was planning on doing an outro to the show, but I really don't need to do an outro since I've already said so much. So just the usual reminders, if you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. And yeah, I think the most important thing is that Energy Talking Points Substack. So again, it is, it is alexepstein.substack.com. All right. Enjoy the discussion with Michael Lynch. Our Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Well, this is my second episode in the week of this Texas electricity crisis, and I'm going to ask my guests a little bit about this, but mainly we're going to talk about something longer term, which is the future of oil. Now, the first time I had this guest in my podcast, everyone was claiming we would be running out of oil. Now they're claiming we have too much oil and we'll have no use for it. Uh, both times he is criticizing the mainstream opinion, and I suspect both times 
He is right. My guest is Michael Lynch. Uh, Michael, welcome to Power Hour. Thanks a lot, Alex. Good to see you. Good to good to have you back. You're the you were the second guest ever in oh. uh, Power Hour history, and I, I I sometimes tell Robert Bryce this because he was the first. But when okay. I had you on, I thought like I'll never get this guy on my podcast. It was, it was very intimidating at the time. So oh no, Come good on. to have gotten to know you since then. Yes, so I'm and not Robert a starstruck. Yeah, <laughs> and him. Um, as well. So let's, uh, before we talk about, so you have a new essay that I think is really good, but let's talk about a little bit what's happening in Texas. So what's your high level take on this? Uh, my high level take is that uh, partly this is an unusual situation. Um, we have seen this throughout in, in the energy security business, which is people don't like to spend money on insurance for small probability events like unusual weather events. Uh, people uh, in Massachusetts after an ice storm said, why don't we bury the power lines until they heard what it costs? Uh, I know there's been problems with uh, natural gas supply and power plants, but also uh, wind turbines uh, freezing up. And amazingly enough, solar power doesn't work too well when the panels are covered with snow. So, uh, you know, I, I think this is a problem where you have, partly because you have people pushing uh, certain mandates uh, to satisfy objectives that may not reflect the real needs of the system, uh, in particular, uh, pushing a lot of uh, renewables, uh, which are, as we all know, they're very uh, volatile, they're variable, they're unpredictable, uh, they require a lot of backup. Um, but it's also, you know, people want cheap electricity. And if you say, do you want to pay us, uh, you know, to have uh, winterized uh, plants and pumps and so forth, they don't want to hear about that. Well, and also, I mean, one point I made in, in uh, I posted this Twitter thread that has become by at least by far the most popular thing I've ever posted. I mean, one point, and we had this in California as well, is the more you're spending extra for what I would call unreliable energy, when, when you're putting cost pressure already, the less people are inclined to do things like maintenance and reliability, because then it's even more of a burden to the ratepayers. So I think it's documented in California that there were talks of PG&E doing a whole bunch of maintenance. And they basically said, look, we're spending all this money extra for green energy. It's going to, there's going to be a lot of hostility to this if we raise the rates and, and we do this. So these, these things have trade-offs and I definitely think that's a, that's a part of it, but let's jump into uh, the future more. Uh, so what, first of all, what's the, just give the readers, I have a bunch of specific questions of what's, what's your essay and then what's your summary of it? Well, essentially, in the, in the past couple of years, people have started talking about peak oil demand, uh, and the pandemic has increased the idea that uh, it's imminent or even past. You've had a few uh, companies like uh, BP and Shell that have scenarios that show a near-term peak in oil demand, um, and it's, it's kind of the flavor of the day. You know, everybody wants to talk about it. Uh, and the problem is, it's, most of the talk is very superficial. Um, the assumption that somehow human nature is going to change uh, because of the pandemic, even though nothing has ever changed it before. Um, and there's a lot of bad numbers uh, when you talk about, especially battery electric vehicles. Um, I found all kinds of things with people, uh, you know, they should have already taken over the market by now. And instead, they're 2%, 3% of the market. Um, and I think a lot of it is just irrational exuberance. And what was the title again? Oh, the title was uh, Oil Demand After the Pandemic uh, is the End in Sight. I think that was it. Gotcha. 
Gotcha. I haven't read it in a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just read it, but I yeah. forgot I forgot the, the title, but I remember the content. Yeah. So one thing I like about your work in general is that you like to draw historical parallels to predictions about the future. I think there's just a generally huge bias when apparently smart people are predicting things with confidence to treat them as if these predictions are real, as if, oh, well, they're gonna, they're saying this, so it has to happen. You know, the world, everyone's saying we're going to net zero by 2050, so we are really doing that. Or Biden says we're going carbon-free electricity grid by 2035. So that's uh, that's really happening. Uh, and with these green predictions, tech- technologically specifically, you have uh, a couple of ones that I found fascinating historically. So one I'd like you to talk about a bit is uh, Emery Lovin's supercar. <laughs> um, this was uh, it, it's it's funny because he came up with the idea of the, the supercar or hypercar about the same time as the Clinton administration was pushing uh, the same idea, uh, but from a slightly different angle. Uh, And his argument was, oh, you can make a really, really efficient car that gets 80, 90, 100 miles per gallon. Um, And, you know, you could, but it required a cost of something like $120,000 for a vehicle. Uh, and he said, you know, this is uh, he, he later wrote a report winning the oil end game. And he said, oh, you know, this this hyper efficient car plus cellulosic ethanol means that, uh, you know, we're all going to stop using oil. It's it, oh, I didn't realize is, he was peddling that at one point. Uh, what's what's actually more amazing is you can find it uh, uh, on the Web, download it. And he has all these uh, top flight people, including senior oil industry executives and George Schultz who's an economist, uh, praising the report. Um, apparently, I don't think they actually read it very carefully, but they don't seem to realize that Amory Lovins has been sort of telling us, you know, energy is, is efficiency is too cheap to meter. Uh, and he keeps predicting electricity demand will collapse. And then with this report, gasoline demand will collapse. And, and the stuff doesn't come through because he just completely ignores costs. He's, he's, he's totally uh, uninterested in the cost of all these things. If they're technically feasible, he says, we, we will do it. Mm. What about uh, fuel cell predictions? <laughs> yeah, this is funny because I've been looking at this again. Um, it, 25 years ago, Ballard Power said, oh, we've made a cheaper fuel cell. And people went gaga over it, to use a technical term. Um, the economists uh, wrote about how, you know, this was the next big thing. Uh, Daimler Chrysler said, oh, by 2004, 2005, we'll be selling 100,000 hydrogen fuel cell vehicles a year. Current sales now are about 2,000. Um, the auto companies poured hundreds of millions of dollars into this. Uh, the Ballard Power stock went from about a dollar to $120 and back down again. And, and it was never close to feasible. But, um, you know, I've been I've been pulling up all these great stories about, uh, the you know, the hydrogen fuel cell bus in Chicago is the next big thing and so forth. And it just didn't play out because it was, it was just wildly uneconomic. And it still is. All right. One more, which we alluded to, cellulosic ethanol. I think Vinod Kosla once called this brain dead simple or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, th- this is this is astonishing because I, I, I've seen so many people talk about how, oh, you know, this is this is it's so easy. It's right there. Um, and Congress actually wound up mandating that the oil industry buy a certain amount of cellulosic ethanol, not just ethanol, but cellulosic ethanol per year. Um, and the industry, the 
companies just said, you know, look, we can't get the chemistry right. These the cell the cell uh, molecular bonds are just too hard to break. Uh, we can we can do it, but it's super expensive. Um, the other thing people kind of ignored was, uh, you know, they sort of go, oh well, you know, you're not using corn, you're using waste mass, like, uh, uh, you know, what's left after you take out the, the corn feed, uh, the corn from the corn stalks. But you have to transport all that stuff to a plant. <laughs> and so it's not free. It's actually kind of expensive. Um, and you've had any number of people who sort of touted this. Uh, James Woolsey, the former CIA director, uh, wrote a foreign affairs article, again, about 25 years ago. Um, and it supposedly is right around the corner. And it's just not there. So when, you know, when you bring these things up in the essay, I think you make the good point that this doesn't prove that new predictions are wrong, but it, it means that they're def it's not proven that they're right. So we need to look at them critically. And one piece of context that you give that I hadn't thought much about, but I find fascinating is this idea that it's very rare that resources go out of use. You say sometimes they, they'll peak, but it's rare that they go out of use and you use the examples of wood and stone. So I'd, I'd love you to talk about that. Well, well, you know, the, the, the famous quote is the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stone. Uh, and the truth is, yeah, people stopped using stone tools. They switched to bronze and then iron and now steel. Uh, but stone is still a big business. Um, there's, there's only about 50 years of data uh, for crushed stone use, for example, uh, in this country. And it it's basically hasn't gone down at all. Uh, people still use wood about as much as they ever did. The power, uh, the, the U.S. power system uh, uses a substantial amount of wood. It's mostly in uh, cogeneration plants, um, and it hasn't gone down. Again, it's been relatively flat for forty or fifty years. So uh, you just these things just don't go away. What usually happens is they stop growing, and something else takes over the growth. Like oil took over from coal up to a point. I mean, global coal. Global coal usage is still near record highs. So why, what is the explanation for this? Why don't they go away? Well, it's usually a question of, you know, you partly inertia. You have all this uh, installed capital uh, that's designed to use it. Um, it's usually fairly attractive uh, in the use that it's, it's put. Um, you don't... Uh, you don't see the economics go that bad or it remains, say, a, a niche uh, market. Um, so, you know, nobody nobody uses gas for lighting in their houses anymore, but there's still lots of gas use because, you know, it's there, it's cheap, and it, it has other uses. I mean, I don't think, uh, well, like you say, most of us don't use animal fat to lubricate uh, our machines, but I guess a lot of us uh, use it uh, on our bodies. So <laughs> I shouldn't use that as an example. Yeah, it is really interesting. Like once you figure out how to cost effectively produce something, that's such a that's such a feat. And then people can just find all these valuable uses for it. Yeah. And if people stop using wood, you know, to heat all their homes, then all of a sudden you've got a lot of wood out there that's going unused. And some people say, well, you know, I live I live near a forest. I'll use heat. I just saw a story that uh, England is suffering pollution because of so many people are burning wood. And uh, my old mentor, Maury Edelman, used to say that uh, the pilgrims came to Boston to get warm and people would laugh because Boston's so cold. But he said, but the wood was so cheap, it, people had roaring fires. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, okay, so now we're going to move to oil. And so oil is interesting because oil is the most valuable material in the world. And it's predicted to be so worthless that 
to have it on your inventory means that it's a stranded asset. So it's a really interesting kind of prediction. And one, one piece of context, if we start off with the battery vehicle thing is you talk about what it means you, you do oil vehicles versus battery vehicles. Before we get to that, you give this really good comparison of what it really means to be superior. And you use the example of the Model T versus the horse. So talk about that kind of competitive advantage that the, the Model T had over the horse. So the Model T was the first mass production car, and it quickly took over uh, the automobile market and just, you know, transportation ultimately. And some people have said, oh, Tesla is the Model T of the future uh, or the present, I guess. Um, the truth is, you know, a Model T could carry five to seven passengers. Uh, it had a range of a couple hundred miles. It could easily do 30 miles, 40 miles an hour. Um, there was uh, the emissions went into the air, so you didn't have to deal with them. Whereas a horse, you could do maybe 12 miles an hour uh, for limited periods. Uh, you could go uh, carry one to two people. You could only carry about, uh, I think about 20%, no, sorry, 10% as much cargo on a horse as you could in a Model T. Um, and the Model T was more expensive, but in every other uh, factor, uh, it, it was far superior to the horse. Whereas if you look at a battery electric vehicle, they're a lot more expensive. They have much smaller range. Plus the range is really uncertain, you know, which is not a problem with gasoline vehicles. Uh, and the recharging time, the absolute best recharging time is still five times as much as it takes to refuel a gasoline car. And it can be 10 and 20 if you don't have access to a, a fast charging station. I mean, one interesting thing when it comes to the vehicles, this relates to a bunch of other things, but talk about the trend of SUVs around the world. Because one of the attractions of the battery vehicles is in people's minds, oh, people think they're saving the world, so they're going to do that in mass. But it seems like people are using a lot of SUVs. Yeah, that's that's the funny thing. I was a little surprised to see, uh, even in countries like India, the market share of SUVs has tripled in 10 years. Um, and it's approaching that in the U.S., uh, the SUV, people want comfort, uh, they want capability, they don't want green. I mean, uh, you know, people always brag about, oh, look how, how many electric cars are being sold, but the SUV is far outpacing uh, the electric cars. And it, it, it kind of goes, goes uh, I think you could go back to Plato and the idea of, you know, the spiritual world is so much superior than the material world, some people will tell you. Um, and, you know, most famously, you had uh, hermits and anchorites in the Middle Ages who would like lock themselves up in cells so they could avoid the material world and think. And now you have people say, oh, you know, consumers don't really want stuff. It's like, really? How come they're all buying all this stuff? You know, <laughs> uh, I don't see any sign. I, yeah, there's, there's like 0.5% of people say, oh, I want to live a simple life. And the rest of the people want to have uh, electric, uh, electrically heated car seats. So, uh, there's no real uh, push because of morality or social concerns away from uh, the consumption of fossil fuels and trying to reduce emissions in that sense. I mean, you make a lot of good points in the essay about the, the specific details of the cost, like the cost effectiveness of battery vehicles for the average person, both the cost and the effectiveness. And one thing that I, I've been thinking about a lot as I finish my second book is I don't trust people to predict the future unless they recognize the present. 
And <laughs> these, if, if, and I do it with climate, like if people don't admit climate deaths have gone down, or if they don't admit that fossil fuels are dominant, I don't believe anything they say about the future. And it's similar with battery vehicles, where if people say, yes, battery vehicles are not yet nearly as cost effective as fossil fuels, but for X, Y, and Z, I think they will be, that's plausible. But a lot of people act like, oh no, they're way better now for the average person. <laughs> and that's just totally detached from reality, right? Yeah, I, I actually just recently found uh, there, there's two different groups at MIT that have estimated the competitiveness of uh, gasoline versus battery cars. And, and one group, which is engineers, said, oh, you know, they're all already much better than gasoline powered cars. And the economist said, well, if you factor in stuff like a convenience, uh, no, you need to get a lot, a lot better off. Um, it, it really bothers me because you have a lot of assertions made out there about what people want. And then you have all these excuses for why people don't seem to understand what they should want, like uh, market failures and bad information and social costs and so forth. But you know, in the end, it comes down to uh, you make a better product, people buy it. Um, and uh, the electric car is nowhere near a better product at this point. Let's talk about batteries and the evidence for that. Cause you do have, I mean, as far as I can tell, a very impressive drop in the price of batteries of lithium, lithium ion batteries, at least in the last decade. So where, how far has that gone and where do you see it going? Well, that's, that's something, um, I didn't include it in this report. I did it several years ago. I found that, um, those, the numbers are very fuzzy because if you go back more than four or five years, there was not a mass market for these batteries. So, uh, you know, the, the cost estimates also range very widely, uh, and, and people's estimates of the trend in costs, uh, declining as are, are like 10% to 25% a year and so forth. So you really, it's not clear how far they've come down. They are cheaper. They are better. Uh, on the other hand, you know, when you say, okay, so if the battery pack is a big part of the car's costs, how come the price of cars hasn't come down? So the Nissan Leaf, which is the one that's been sold for some years, the prices haven't gone down at all, even though the battery pack has come down supposedly about $5,000. Um, so uh, we don't know how much further you're going to get with the lithium ion battery because it is starting to become a mature um mature technology now, uh, which, you know, 10 years ago, it definitely was not. Uh, and it's not clear it's going to get that much better. Uh, there are people talking about, you know, new types of batteries, but none of them is well. And there are people who've been talking about other batteries just around the corner, like uh, nickel, uh, metal hydride, sodium sulfate, which just didn't pan out. Um, so uh, it's not clear to me that you can really predict that the, the price of the battery is going to be that much lower to offset all these other uh, problems like the, the long charging times. Yeah, I'm really interested to see how it plays out because I've noticed the same thing with the actual price of these vehicles. It hasn't been plummeting <laughs> as much as you would think. And it, it's there's this view, I think, that, I mean, everything is a false analogy to microchips. I think that's a lot of it. So everyone is just like, oh, well, Moore's law happens. And so that's got to yeah. happen. And it's weird to think of it for batteries because it's like, that's such a physical thing. Like you're using a bunch of oil to mine stuff. And like, why do you, there are reasons to, to look at the supply chain and think, oh, this can be shrunk, but not that, oh, this is going to go down by another factor of 10. Okay. Like this, this is, this is an argument I've made before. Um, I have a slide I've used sometimes and I show uh, a floppy disk from, 
30 years ago and I say this was $3 and it held 128K. Now for $5, you can buy a little memory stick that holds a thousand, I don't know, a million times that, you know, five gigabytes. But your car battery hasn't shrunk. It's a little better, but the car battery is basically what it was because it's a chemical thing. Um, and you don't find chemical uh, processes shrinking. You don't see refineries shrinking. You don't see petrochemical plants shrinking. Um, that's that's just that's just the science of it. Um, and so when, frankly, people like Al Gore sort of go, well, look at the cell phones. Why can't we do that with with car batteries? And the answer is because it's chemistry. You can't make chemical chemical processes thousands of times more efficient. Yeah, another thing that's related to what you said is, like I'm very skeptical of a lot of these numbers. So one thing is we know that people that the automakers are having losses on these EVs. So there's a question of what are these batteries even cost? And there's all you know all these different kinds of incentives. And then if you look at something like you know a Tesla Powerwall, so people will say, oh well, it's it's getting close to $100 a kilowatt hour. But I think that's around $700 a kilowatt hour. Right? I, I actually just looked wall. that up last week and I found you could buy it for $800 a kilowatt hour. I don't think it's um, gone down that much in price. I don't no, think it certainly and, hasn't gone down by a factor of four or something. Or, no. And it part, part of it is people are mixing apples and oranges and oak trees and acorns. <laughs> um, you know, they'll talk about sort of, uh, you know, what GM has to pay to buy battery cells uh, at, in, you know, huge quantities. Uh, but then the battery pack is more expensive than the, the individual cells. Um, and if you're buying them as, as a person or buying them in a car, uh, the, the price goes up that much more. You know, you're paying retail. Um, it's just um, it, I'm still trying to nail down exactly what the prices are. And I found so many different numbers out there um, and also so many different numbers for what the price needs to be for the cars to be competitive. Um, and uh, that's part of the problem is there's so many people, so many advocates for electric vehicles who will just pick a number that they saw on the internet and they'll repeat it endlessly. And everybody thinks that's a real number. And the, the number I've seen most often is $100 per kilowatt hour. I can't find the source of that. And, and other things I've seen suggest that, no, that's, that's, that's uh, still too high. Uh, and that the prices are still well above that right now. Yeah, and again, there is this sloppiness where it's not clear. Okay, is that just the core of the battery? Is that the actual functioning battery pack? Is that something you're delivering to a car? Is that with the consumer? And we we don't make those mistakes with oil because we're really clear on oh, this is what a <laughs> barrel of oil costs. Uh, you know, and this is what gasoline costs. And there's not nearly that transparency with batteries. Right, because I mean, you could say so. Uh, oil in the ground is a third the the price, uh, the third the value of oil above ground because you have to produce it over time. So it's a discounting thing. Uh, but you'll occasionally see people say, "Oh, somebody paid, bought a billion barrel oil field for three billion dollars." Aha, three dollars is the price. Like, no, that's not the real price. Um, so. Uh, it is, and, and again, it's partly because there's just so much interest and so many people without economic backgrounds uh, who just trust, you know, this is a, a Tom Nichols book, The Death of Expertise. Where he says, so many people think because they read something on the internet and they like it, uh, that makes them an expert because they now have knowledge when in fact they, they don't realize how much uh, junk is out there on the internet. 
Yeah. Although a lot of the des, I, I use the term a lot in my new book, designated experts, like the designated experts in our society do not have a great track record, particularly <laughs> when there's a big moral movement that they're part of to, you know, get off something or get on something. And in this case, it's, it's, it has well, both like of those you, components. Yeah. You mentioned Avery Lemons before. This is a guy who's won every award in the book, mostly from environmental organizations and, you know, he was a guy early on who said, you know, we, we can we can be more efficient in our energy use. And people laughed at him back in the 70s. And he turned out to be right in that sense. But since then, you know, he's, he's essentially promoted uh, gold plated uh, uh, solutions uh, that people just don't want. Um, and yet because because they like his message he's still considered this big guru. And, you know, I, I debated him once in Washington and, and with his report winning the oiled end game. And I raised a bunch of, you know, uh, what I thought were compelling objections and he just refused to respond. So, you know, the moderator asked him to respond to my, my uh, criticisms. And he said, well, let's talk about instability in the middle East instead. Well, do you, is that recorded that debate? No, I don't think so. This is this was at the National Defense University about uh, twelve years ago, I think. Oh man, so many of the best things are not recorded. That's why I record everything. <laughs> I tell you, there was another debate where uh, there was a Nobel Prize-winning physicist who said, "Well, he read that oil supply is peaking and we have a climate change problem, and he had the solution: solar power stations on the moon." And the people in the audience choked a little bit. And somebody said, I, I think that's beyond our budget. And he said, oh, no, it's free because all the materials are on the moon. You don't need to lift them out of orbit. <laughs> and, uh, that was not recorded, but uh, his name was Roy Smalley. He's passed away then. But, you know, I mean, it, it's one of those things where, yeah, tech, you could do it technically. But just as you could, you could technically power a car with Mentos and Diet Coke. Um, but Nobody does it because you know it's technically feasible, but that's all. Yeah, I mean, there's almost no. This is actually the section of the book I was editing today. Just people just value technical achievement and do not value economic achievement. So this idea, oh well, we could send a man to the moon, so of course we can change our whole energy system. It's like no, the equivalent would be sending every man to the moon. <laughs> that's that's a brilliant analogy. Yes, good, Alex. I can't wait to see your book. Oh, okay, good. Well, I'll, I'll send you a copy when it's okay, done. Okay, I'll review it for you. Oh, awesome. That would be great. So um, let's talk about, so the thing that concerns me most about EVs is while they're not as cost-effective as gasoline vehicles, they're not so far from cost-effective like a kind of Mark Jacobson hydrogen-powered plane type, like made-up crank idea. Yeah. That what I'm wary of is that they have significant progress mandating them and just really hurting the poorest people and middle-class people most of all. And, and to support that, we've got all these mandates now. And so I'm curious what you think of how these mandate, like it seems like these mandates can sort of work more than like mandating a hydrogen plane, which just it wouldn't work at all, or cellulosic ethanol, like it doesn't work. And then you scrap it. What do you think of these mandates and what they portend? I, I don't think I've ever met a mandate I liked. Um, then that includes from my wife. Don't tell her I said that. But okay. um, yeah. I think she's a regular viewer of power. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. She teaches languages. She doesn't care about economics. Um, the um, a, a mandate is like saying this doesn't work. We have to force people to buy it. Um, and it's also saying we're going to disguise the costs by making uh, the bigger system like a utility buy a small amount of the very expensive stuff and then 
press the cost onto all of their customers so that it's not so noticeable. Or in, you know, in the case of electric vehicles, it's subsidies the taxpayers are paying for, you know, rich people to buy electric vehicles. Um, and it's, there have been, there's increasing uh, complaints that uh, both renewables uh, like solar and wind uh, and battery electric vehicles are essentially uh, a, a tax on the poor to support the upper middle class. Uh, and I think it's very valid. Um, and I think especially when, when we start to look after the pandemic and say, you know, gee, we've all got, there's so much debt out there. And then people say, okay, but you know, all this, all this stuff is really cheap. You're going to have to give us a lot of money for it. Uh, I think there'll be some more, uh, some more serious consideration and opposition to, to uh, some of these subsidies and mandates. Um, uh, you know, the, the Californians tried mandating the, the battery electric vehicle back in the, in the 90s, and a lot of states like Massachusetts, New England, uh, generally signed on to that. And the idea was, well, you can force the technology. Uh, and it didn't work. Uh, there's a great book, The Car That Could, which came out just, be, just after the GM's EV1 appeared on the market. And the author didn't realize it was going to be a complete failure. But he describes all the problems they, they've had to face just to get even a really inferior product to market. Um, and in the end, I think Alan Lloyd uh, at, the, at the Air Resources Board in California, he said, look, it's not my job to promote electric vehicles. It's my job to promote clean air. So a mandate for electric vehicles answers the question, how do we get people to buy electric vehicles? It doesn't answer the question, how do we get people to reduce emissions? And a lot of people have pointed out that, you know, you're only reducing emissions by 30, 40, 50 percent, depending on your power uh, source. And, and even if you have a lot of renewable or zero emission power like nuclear, uh, making the car and making the batteries takes a lot of energy and involves a lot of emissions. So it's actually one of the most expensive ways out there to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, you know, there's one chart uh, McKinsey did some years ago showing all the different costs and they don't even include electric vehicles because they're off the scale. Yeah, I found that a, that was a good good fact from the article. <clears throat> so let's see what else. Um, what about just with EVs, the fact that they need electricity and right now we're having difficulty providing electricity for a world where it's 2% EVs. <clears throat> This is this is a, a real problem, and again, it's the sort of thing where I think people haven't seriously considered, um, uh, you know, the technical challenges, and that's what we're seeing in places like California, Texas, with the renewables now. Uh, they just kind of wave around. I mean, I, I love people would say, "Oh, you know, uh, you have high air conditioning use in the middle of the day, and you have high solar power, so there's no problem." Well, it turns out they they don't overact, they don't overlap exactly, so you need to ramp up a lot of natural gas power in California. Uh, people said, oh, it's, it's, you know, people will recharge their cars at home at night when the power demand is low. Well, yeah, but you also have less solar power, less wind power at night. So uh, especially solar, obviously. Yeah, um, a lot less. <laughs> um, oh, by the way, I have to send you, an, there's an article where somebody suggested a solar powered tank for NATO, which is just about as, I can't, it's, it's the funniest thing I've seen. Uh, but anyway, yeah, yeah it's, it's not clear what it means for the grid if you have a lot more of these, these uh, cars. And, you know, people, you don't know when people are going to charge them because supposedly a lot of offices will have uh, free charging stations. 
uh, in the future. Um, and then all of a sudden you're adding to your daytime load instead of your nighttime load. Uh, and I don't think people have factored that in. So, uh, it, you know, it, you're sort of saying let's, let's do all these different things to sort of improve emissions slightly at a huge cost. Uh, and you got to say, well, surely there's something else we could do. Um, you know, plant trees. Uh, of course, I'm, I'm very much in favor of uh, going out to the third world and giving people propane so they don't have to chop down trees for cooking. I think that's something you would approve of. Um, yeah, I mean, that's made a you know, huge demonstrable difference in a lot of places, India, Tanzania. It's just, it's amazing how transformative <clears throat> it is and how little interest there is from most mainstream entities. Yeah. And, you know, I was in Africa a few years ago and, and all the Europeans were talking about uh, solar power uh, for villages in Africa and all the Africans were talking about power ac access and energy poverty. And it was a real disconnect. Um, and, you know, I, I, I keep having the problem that uh, this stuff sounds great if you're rich or if you can get somebody else to pay for it. Um, but, you know, the battery electric vehicle, uh, if you if you look at, at the, the few models where you have a, a gasoline power and an option or electric option, it's eight, ten, twelve thousand dollar difference. It's it's just a lot of money, and it's it, you know. And again, why should the taxpayers be having to pay for this? Since you know, you're not getting bus drivers going out there buying Teslas. Yeah, for <clears throat> sure. Um, let me just see. Okay, I just want to make sure I look over my list of questions and don't forget any, and then. Uh, Regret it. Well, let's talk about, so one of the arguments that EVs in these, uh, and in general oil uses, EVs are going to increase, oil use is going to decline precipitously as well. Now we have changing attitudes, like we're more environmentally uh, <clears throat> conscious. So we addressed that, actually, we addressed that a little bit with SUVs. What about this argument that, well, we're not going to want much mobility and material stuff anymore post-pandemic because we've discovered the joys of uh, not moving during the pandemic? And that's, it's, this is something where first you have to understand the pandemic is an unusual event. It's a transient and people have a tendency to sort of say, aha, now everything will be different. Uh, and I've been hearing that my whole life and things never change. <clears throat> but also, you know, you've definitely seen the internet has reduced in-store retail shopping somewhat but a lot less than people expected. It has not reduced business travel significantly. People thought after September 11th that, that you know, uh, people would be afraid to fly. That hasn't happened. Um, you're still seeing the same amount of, of uh, car highway use uh, that, you know, keeps going up. The miles traveled in this country go up year after year uh, and plane travel goes up year after year, especially internationally. Um, it's really hard to find evidence of, people opting for the simpler lifestyle. I used to joke, you know, there used to be a, uh, a bumper sticker that said, live simply so others may live. And I said, uh, okay, live simply so I can have more stuff. <clears throat> nice. Oh, here's a question I forgot. Uh, what I want to talk about the batteries and other things. What are, in your research, what have you seen about the scaling challenges? Because people talk about, we're going to use 50 times more of this and they don't seem to think, oh, that might present some challenges with different kinds of raw materials involved. There's, yeah, that's the thing. Uh, it's, it's a myth that rare earth minerals are actually rare. There are a lot of them, but they are expensive. They're dirty to produce. They are energy intensive to produce. 
uh, a lot of the stuff uh, is is produced in places uh, that are, shall we say, not socially acceptable. Uh, you know, teenagers in the Congo digging mines, um, that kind of thing. Uh, and although in theory you could increase uh, the production of those things to a huge degree. But if you if you talk about ramping it up quickly, I think you're just going to have a lot of problems, uh, local pollution problems, uh, and a certain amount of dependence where you're vulnerable to, say, now China for some of these materials, but also, like I say, the Congo uh, is a big supplier. So, uh, you know, it'd be great if uh, there were big lithium deposits in West Virginia and the coal miners could just switch over, but uh, that's not going to happen. Well, there are lithium deposits in the U.S., but it's not the Biden administration isn't clamoring to increase mining. <laughs> yeah, I think if they do that, uh, hell will freeze over. Well, actually, I guess we're pretty close to that with Texas now. Yeah, that's right. It's <laughs> the world is so warm, but it's still too cold. Um, yeah. OK, one. This is a question I have that's only tangentially related, but I need it for my own research. So I'll ask you, like, what is the what's the best research we have on the state of hydrocarbon deposits in the world. So when people are estimating how much oil and gas uh, and coal there is in place, like leaving aside economics, mm -hmm. what are the best estimates we have and where do we get those? Uh, well, I had them in my book, actually, which is oh, five years old now. Boy, time flies. Um, so if you talk about conventional oil, uh, the, we've used about one trillion barrels throughout all of history, a little bit more. Uh, the amount in place is about 12 trillion, of which right now about 4 trillion could be recovered. If you talk about uh, heavy oil and oil sands, uh, there's probably another 10 trillion, uh, of which maybe uh, one and a half to 2 trillion is currently recoverable. Uh, if you talk about oil shale, shale oil, um, that number is a lot fuzzier, but it's probably, again, about 10 trillion uh, in place of which maybe uh, half a trillion to a trillion is now recoverable. And that assumes a very low recovery rate. And then there's kerogen, which is shale that's rock that you have to break up and process. And so that's another maybe 10 to 12 trillion. So, and it can, you know, so essentially we, we've, we've used about 3% of the world's uh, petroleum resource. Um, and the people who think that we were, we were running out just seem to be unaware that the estimates they were getting were saying, ignore all this stuff that's a little expensive or a little hard to produce because we don't need it now. So what we have right now is, you know, another uh, three or four uh, hundred years worth, uh, you know, another three trillion barrels, four trillion that can be produced cheaply. What about natural gas? Oh God, natural gas. Um, sorry, I'm getting my halo. Um, natural gas is super abundant. There's a lot more uh, than petroleum. Um, there are uh, unconventional deposits, uh, clathrates or methane hydrates where a type of uh, crystal that forms under slightly cold, site pressure, but you find it all over the world to the point where, you know, you have thousands and thousands of years of the resource. Um, now, the methane hydrates are expensive to produce now, uh, but people are experimenting uh, in new ways to recover them. Uh, and the thing is, because you find them in uh, seafloors, 
pretty much all over the world, but also places like Alaska, you know, fairly shallow Siberia. But then, uh, you know, if the Japanese can figure out how to make them a bit cheaper and they think they're getting closer, uh, then all of a sudden they've got all the natural gas they want without having to import it. And what about coal? Coal, yeah, see, coal, there's, there's more than you would ever want to produce. And, you know, I mean, I come from a West Virginian family and, and we still, I think, have some coal rights somewhere up in the mountains. But uh, I'm not a big, big fan of coal, uh, except where, you know, the next best thing is a dried dung or something, uh, which is unfortunately the case in many places. Um, so, but it is thought that, you know, the world has easily four or 500 years of coal reserves. And especially if, if you're seeing coal backed out by natural gas more and more around the world, which is kind of happening except China and India, um, then, you know, you don't have a, a problem with the coal supply. Gotcha. All right. Well, I got to go reread that portion of the book or maybe I'll email you because I need the, I got to get all those okay. references, but I'll, ch- um, I'll check the chapter and see, I, mention it to you. I appreciate that. And then final question is what are the most, you mentioned this a little bit, but what are the most exciting technologies on the horizon? Because one thing people don't think about with resources <clears throat> is they, they, they always think of it as stagnant. So they, they use reserves in the lowest reserve. So that's like presently pr- planned production and they equate that with potential. Mm-hmm. And of course we have all of, we're continuously, uh, n- not me, but people in industry are continuously innovating. So what do you see as the most exciting technologies now and on the horizon in terms of hydrocarbons? In terms of hydrocarbons, uh, you know, there's work going on, people trying to come up with uh, using recombinant DNA to modify bacteria, to uh, improve recovery um, of uh, oil deposits, especially, but uh, heavy oil and so forth. Um, and that, that conceivably could extend, you know, the existing resource base quite a bit. Uh, nanotechnology, I don't think is there yet, but uh, it has some applications. Um, superconducting, sorry, uh, supercapacitors, Maybe will turn out to be a much better battery than anything we have now, but uh, you know, I I don't think that's near. Um, I think the main thing is uh, people are doing a lot of work on uh, carbon capture, which is a, a fairly new field, and you know, people just nobody cared about. It. I mean, not, why would you do that except when you wanted to insert CO two into an oil field? Um, but there are a number of people saying, you know, we think we've come up with ways. There's a guy who says, uh, if you have a gas-fired plant, if you uh, put burn the methane in pure oxygen, you get a pure CO2 stream, and then you can just pump that into the ground. So you basically, he, sa- he says it's very cheap. Uh, you can have uh, a, a zero emission uh, natural gas fire plant, and that would mean uh, you know, you could instead, you wouldn't have to build solar or uh, uh, wind, you could build natural gas plants everywhere and you wouldn't be adding to uh, the, the uh, carbon emissions. Who is this? Uh, I'll, I'll send you a link. I have to look him up again. Uh, he's he's uh, down in, I think, Alabama somewhere. Um, mm. He seems he's a serious guy. He's got he's got money for it. Um, and, you know, also, I think uh, small nu- small modular reactors, nuclear reactors, and there are people, uh, serious people like at MIT uh, and Lockheed who say they think they can make uh, a fusion reactor roughly the size of a tractor trailer um, because there's been so much advance in both software for controlling a fusion reaction and the materials. Um, and that would give you, you know, 
I'm not going to say electricity too cheap to meter because that's been said (laughs) and laughed at many times, but uh, that could turn out to work out very well. Um, I personally think, you know, I'd like to see a lot more um, use of LNG around the world where you can take um, a barge loaded power plant to a port in, you know, Haiti or uh, West Africa or something. Uh, and you can bring in a, a floating uh, storage unit for LNG uh, and just have a tanker sitting there as in, instead of building something on on land. Um, and you can have power uh, and have that done fairly quickly. And that's that's starting to grow now. And that's that's more on the usage side, but uh, it definitely uh, could help to provide power to a lot of places that need it. Yeah. And, and you know, it would be great to do that with a nuclear submarine or something like that i mean that's but it is it is very exciting to just think like that's a real kind of innovation that most of these quote innovations make no sense to me but that where yeah the ability to just float a power plant over so you don't have to build it on land and probably has more security too and you probably probably is easier to charge for it which is an issue in a lot of poor countries it's very and and you know when when you when you if you uh, then build a bigger units on shore or something you can just sell the barge and s- sail it away to somebody else who needs it. Yeah, it's cool. So yeah, it's 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 good that there are really exciting things in energy. I think generated by free people under competitive markets, and then there are a lot of non-exciting things that people want to force uh, down our throats. <laughs> so he's mostly been talking about the latter, but it's good to talk about it first. Uh, Mike, where can people learn more about you and follow you? Okay. Uh, I blog on Forbes.com, uh, Energy Seer, one word, N-E-N-E-R-G-Y-S-E-E-R.com is my website, although I don't do a lot with that. Uh, and I, I put up uh, research reports on the Energy Policy Research Foundation, EPRINC.org in Washington. That's where the latest report we've been discussing, uh, it's up on the website there. All right, Mike, thanks so much for being on the call. No, it's good to see you, Alex. All right. All right. Thanks again to Michael Lynch for joining me. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Since I already did another episode this week, I won't do too much of a wrap up, but I would just say, go check my Twitter account, twitter.com slash alexepstein. You can see my ultra popular post explaining the Texas electricity crisis like nothing else. All right. I'll be back next week with another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.